This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 240, brought to you in association with Smart and the listedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Stuart Cheatham, founder and CEO of MCube and Empowered. No doubt he will differentiate for us in the show the difference between the two companies, but they're in extremely adjacent spaces. Their claim to fame is mortgages in minutes, not weeks. I think that's fairly clear and fairly straightforward. Super fast mortgages sound interesting and no doubt are challenging and apparently somewhat of a new thing over here, although more of capital A, capital T, a thing in the United States. So, without further ado, plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Stuart. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, when we were talking about things to talk about more interesting than fintech, like like many a founder, uh, or in, in your case, a double F, like many a founder and a father, um, probably an H, a husband as well. <laughs> there's, there's next to no time left for, for life outside that. Uh, or rather, uh, once one's in those circumstances, life is founding and fatherhood and husbanding and, and that kind of stuff and occasionally calling your parents. But you were saying that talking of life and the flow of life and quite adjacent to your day job, you decided to move house. What made you do that? And is, is there a housing market in the UK? Because the li- liquidity seems to drive up and prices are, are drifting down. Yeah, well, it's, well, it's, it's certainly an, a, an interesting and challenging year in the housing market. And maybe we'll touch on that. I mean, no, in, in my situation, yes, I'm, I'm married, a father of three, and we've had a, quite a nomadic lifestyle. I used to run banks in Asia for Lloyds Bank, and we came back to the UK, and we've been hopping from one place to another. So this, at, at last, to the joy of my wife, we've decided to settle down roots and to buy a house. So it's been a quite an interesting experience for me to actually go through the whole process right in the middle of it. I'm, I'm due to exchange contracts next week in the process. So um, I've seen firsthand how the market is working right now for me. And the, the market is very thin. Is it soft? I mean, obviously it varies as a whole, but as a generalisation. Well, it's definitely slowing down and about house prices are coming down. I've been um, following the market around. I, I live in Farnham and I've been following that market obviously quite closely. And it's clearly coming down, but it's, it's not as um, linear or as you would expect it to be. You know, different houses are going still quickly. Some are going through asking prices. Some are going for discounts and, and some are just not selling at all actually and it all really shows you how much that market and the housing market affects all of us and it's a very individual thing so we hear these very generalistic headlines of crashes and stuff like that and sometimes that's true and it's just sometimes simply isn't true the world's obviously much more complex than that and that's certainly my experience in the last few months yes and um, i mean i remember back in the early days i got bored of this whole narrative of can computers do it or do you need a human being and unsurprisingly uh, American businesses at conferences were very keen to say that computers could do everything kind of stuff and um, the Brits whether it's sort of credit rating or, or house valuation or something were very keen to say it isn't but of course the question is entirely lacking context and for a lot of the um, housing market in the UK 
not including the modern shite where they put a thousand Lego blocks into a field yep. to do an insane sort of trying to turn us into Coruscant and a very ugly Coruscant of that, as in my avenue. Uh, every house is completely different, and we'll come back onto that in, in terms of your mortgage thing, because I suspect if you were doing some, I didn't know, uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to insult people, one of my listeners of a, of a random town in, in America, but pick a town where actually you've got some road and there's a thousand buildings in and they're all virtually identical. Uh, that's a little bit easier for your computer to do it uh, on its own. Um, but just so oh, that you don't sort of uh, uh, steer me uh, immediately uh, into the uh, fascinating world of, of mortgages, which I think you've done already. So whereabouts in Asia were you um, nomading? Oh, well, I had this great um, time over there. So I, first of all, I was in Japan for about three and a half years. Which years were they? Were they post-crash? So, so this was pre... So I just went out pre the financial crisis, actually. So I managed Japan, the bank in Japan for Lloyds, through the initial part of that crisis. Then latterly, I then moved to Hong Kong for about four years, and I, I managed the rest of the Asian businesses, about five different banks, all the way through there, all that crash period of time. So it was quite an interesting time to, to run banks. And which crash are we talking about in passing? Because there have been lots of them. Yes, well, yes, 2008, I was, I was referring to them, the last big one. Ah, I see. No, I, I was referring to, and it's just a funny thing how, how language can mean many things, again, depending on the, the context, which will be perhaps relevant to your main course topic but uh, no I was more referring to whenever it was the late 90s when the Japanese stock market tanked uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and was roughly speaking uh, flat for the next 30, 30 years that that crisis although the 08 one was also as you say and probably an interesting time to be a, a CEO of a banking subsidiary. It was a great time actually I really enjoyed those um, those roles out there running businesses even in very challenging times uh, managing through, through, through the cycle and, and, and again doing this in really unique cultures both in Japan and Hong Kong these are fantastic jobs if I would recommend to everyone the opportunity to go and work and live abroad is a, is a, is a great experience not only for work but just for a life experience it's been one of the best things I've done Absolutely well as listeners will know by now because I mentioned it once or twice um, Bridget and I are, are looking at sort of escaping the sinking ship that is the uh, uh, British Isles so uh, we haven't actually lived abroad although we've done lots of businessing abroad and travelling abroad um, but then we're looking at sort of uh, moving abroad uh, a bit later. So things can be done in many ways. And one of the fascinating things was uh, one reason I was trying to decline the offer of talking about moving house and, and all that was that uh, it seemed too much of a sort of uh, promotional promotional audio, not a promotional video, promotional audio for, and I used Empowered M-Cubed. And you know what, their <laughs> service is absolutely amazing. But you were telling me apparently that irony of ironies, you were founder of a company doing super speedy mortgages ain't allowed to use your own amazing invention. It's like, I don't know, it's like inventing the motor car and some regulator or something saying, oh, yes, but you have to use a horse because you've got a commercial interest in motor cars, haven't you? Well, it's, it's, it's not an unusual thing, actually. So if you're running a lender, and as, as I do here, I run two businesses. I run a technology business and I run a, a regulated mortgage um, lender. So typically as a, a sort of a director and you know, significant shareholder, you're not allowed to take commercial or you know, loans from that business because there's a conflict of interest. And there's been lots of examples in the past where people have done this. So it's actually written into um, the articles that I'm not allowed to have a mortgage from my own business. So therefore, I have had to go through one of my competitors, um, so to speak, um, to get my mortgage, which has been a, a, a very interesting experience, let me say, because it's, it's, it's certainly not been a straightforward process for me. Excellent, uh, or not as the case may be. So in terms of your career journey, you mentioned that you were Lloyd's Banking for some time far, far away. 
And then leading up to MQB empowered, as you say, there's ones of tech and ones of whatever. Maybe you'll just explain a little bit more about the sort of the latter stages of your career journey in terms of what it was that led you from, as I always put it, having a proper job uh, with status and money and these kind of things that tends to keep families of many children and wives very happy to the, uh, the, the conversation, which is always an interesting mm-hmm. one where you say to your good lady wife, Ah, oh, yeah. Have I got news to you? I've got this great idea. You know, I'm not going to give up this. <laughs> going to give up this status. Going to give up the Rolls Royces. You know, going to give up the mansion. Going to give up all the money, and we're going to live in a cardboard box. But don't worry, because I'll I'll make it all back again one day. Honest. Yes. Well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure we had that quite of lifestyle, anyways. <laughs> Surely Lloyd's Bank plays enough for Rolls Royces. Well, uh, I was, um, let's say, on the retail side, or the investment banking side. So I always plead poverty then. But uh, no, obviously, I, I, I've been very, um, very fortunate. I've had some fantastic roles. I'm in kind of a, a unique position. So I've been a chief exec of a bank and I've run end-to-end banking businesses, multiple banking businesses in highly regulated environments. And now I run technology business and, and a regulated lender as well. And there's a very stark difference between those, just culturally and um, from a people point of view. So you know, what one is you know, very bureaucratic and highly difficult to change because of regulation and culture and people and things like that. And, and then you move into fintech and you, you kind of ensure that you can't have any of those blockers in place. The so one benefit of having a startup and, and a fintech is agility and speed. So, I mean, I, you know, I ban Gantt charts, I ban project plans. These things Brilliant. are simply not, a, not allowed in this business um, because they're an unnecessary administrational evil that slows you down in change and stuff. And so you can imagine very, there's very, a, a huge difference between the type of people that work in these businesses and the way that you work these businesses. And I've been fortunate enough to do both. Equally challenging, both interesting, but very different. Excellent. So in terms of what led you personally to wake up one morning and go, Oh, bollocks, <laughs> fuck it, <laughs> let's, let's do a startup. It may not have been a moment of sort of waking up and falling out of bed and it sort of suddenly comes to you. It may have been a process o- over time. Was it the fact that, uh, and something I've experienced, which is for the sake of argument, I used to think of this back in the day as eventually one stage in my life when the times was the times, which hasn't been for decades since Murdoch took it over, I was able to do the crossword. And then, but I was able to do it the next, next day and the next day. And that's why actually I left tech because I could... I could tell the computer to say hello world and it would, it would keep doing that and the computer didn't change that much. Technology was slow in the past. And it was something, well, I thought, well, I know how to do this now. And my kind of boredom threshold kept me throughout my career doing something until I could, you know, thought I'd sort of relatively mastered it. Not, not that any of us master, master life, as it were. But I got to the stage where I thought, well, okay, well, next year is going to be pretty much like this, you know, and I've done it for a few years now and I wanted to move on. Was it, was it something like that, which is that you thought, well, actually... You know, by the time I'm 75, I'm a bit late to be a sort of an entrepreneur and start up sort of fintechs. I mean, the one good thing about running your businesses in Asia is actually they're about as autonomous as they possibly could be <laughs> within a bank. Now, that doesn't mean you are autonomous, but if you're eight hours time zone difference from your boss, you know, you've got latitude, particularly if you're running something in a financial crisis as well, you, you, you're, you're forced to and made to make decisions. And this is a great experience. And I loved it, to be honest with you. And then when you come back to the mothership, what you find, you become a small cog in a big wheel. And and you become um, an expert in your silo when you do whatever you do in your silo, where actually I was 
had a very generalist and broadened um, uh, skill set and knowledge, and, and it was just more intellectually interesting. So I, I became bored quite quickly and realized that actually, if I wanted to kind of um, keep myself challenged and engaged in a, in a career, it was, it was, I had to do something more interesting. And, and in, in that regard, I decided that we, I would start up my own business, and I met my business partner, who was in a similar role, but we did not have a, an idea of what we were going to do. So we, we literally had a black, blank piece of paper, and we started to look at the marketplace to see where did we think we could make a difference. And we looked at fintech because we were both um, uh, from the financial markets, naturally. We, and, we, and we could see sort of, you know, a sea of red in payments and um, the, these types of areas. And what value would we add? And then when we looked at lending, we started to see some clear blue water, particularly when you got to complex and highly regulated lending like mortgages. And, and actually, we saw there, there was very little innovation and development in the last couple of decades in, in reality. And certainly the borrower experience had not changed. And therefore we came homed in on this, kind of go, why is that? That seems so bizarre um, to us when we looked at it with fresh pair of eyes and we said, this is, this is of interest to us. And so it was a very kind of rational approach. It wasn't this kind of eureka moment. I couldn't get a mortgage and I was so pissed off with banks. I had to do something to change the world, which is the normal entrepreneurial story you'll get. Mine was a far more rational, targeted approach looking at the market like that. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that story because often you do get this sort of the origin story. You know, I was on holiday and I couldn't X and therefore I decided to X uh, myself. And it's interesting, actually, because culturally uh, I've seen many people come back from being expats far, far away and do some kind of shift in their life because the stimulation of being far, far away, surrounded by people of a very different culture and all, and all that, and a very different environment, is, if I may say, with no disrespect to the natives of Farnham, uh, more stimulating um, than Farnham, where you can kind of uh, uh, understand where everyone's uh, coming from without making any effort. And I think the other thing which is uh, important there, of course, is that you weren't exactly looking at the blank sheet of paper, because if at the top you'd got something to do with banking or whatever, you knew quite a lot about the landscape. Yes already and uh, i think that the people do, who do go astray go and think they want to be an entrepreneur well that's fine and they think oh i'll go into restaurants how hard can it be well if you ain't been in a restaurant pal <laughs> it's pretty hard it's pretty bloody hard and, and you don't even know it i mean it is, it is being in a different territory in the same way that being in in china or in um, japan is a different territory so you had that advantage okay so when, when, when was this formed when was this formed so, so we started about six years ago and we formally funded the business about four and a half years ago. And you're absolutely right, Mike, because you, you look at this, you need kind of um, anybody who thinks about starting up a business, you know, or doing something like that. You, you need a true north and a steadying part of it, because the reality is there's so many unknowns out there that you, you will get lost quickly. I mean, the, the learning curve is so steep and so quick. And it's so different from a corporate lifestyle. I mean, it's, it's an obvious statement and everybody says it. And all I can say is really, it is big. And until you've experienced, you haven't. So having a true north there is really important because no, you're, you're going to have to learn how to deal with investors. You're going to have to deal with raising money, debt and equity and all these sorts of things. These are all becoming new experiences for, for a founder, all, all, all of which is great. But again, you want a, a solid skill set that you know you can build on. And that's exactly what we did. We were both 
bankers and both um, experience of running those type of businesses. Excellent. Well, in terms of the, I mean, one of the things you've done very well, which may come back to your CEOing days, is have a very simple and very clear proposition that you could tell the bloke next to you in the pub or, or on the train or tell your mum and she would understand it like, oh yeah, what, what, you, what you're doing, son? Oh, I'm, I'm doing a company that's going to make mortgages faster and, and easier. Oh, okay. And many, many, <laughs> the vast majority of fintechs couldn't tell their mum or the bloke next to them in the pub. So I think the listeners out there, we can assume, understand the words faster and the word mortgage. So we don't have to, as in some products, dive into what the bloody hell mm. is that. Um, so let's just start actually with the commercial landscape. So fintech as a whole, you may have noticed this, especially having a technology company uh, as one of your companies. Uh, fintech as a whole is about using technology to do things faster. <laughs> and your story about um, having the latitude in the Asia, I laughed because I remember that back in Climate days. You'd come into the office in the morning and the buggers would have done something. <laughs> using quotes, I mean air quotes here, using their initiative. <laughs> yes. Which sometimes good and sometimes not what the pandorandums in the headquarters had wanted, funnily enough. But also I was laughing because back in the day, way back in the day, when this sort of Asian business from Britain started, it's an East India company, you'd send a letter home and they'd send a, you know, oh, I was thinking about doing this. And they'd send a reply. Well, the, the bloody ships would take, it took about 18 months to get a reply. So that was real latitude. That was yeah. real latitude in the, in the day, which you did have to report to headquarters, but they wouldn't give you an answer for 18 months. At which point you would, yes. you'd send the reply saying, oh, sorry, uh, no, we, we did this anyway. <laughs> so anyway, lat- but anyway, you can be a founder these days. And they were entre- entrepreneurs. So commercial landscape. Uh, and I recall when we were prepping this, me saying, well, yeah, OK, doing things faster. Yeah, I think I've heard of that in the last decade using technology. And mortgages, I've definitely heard of mortgages. So, yeah, okay, but hasn't everyone else done that kind of thing? So, what does this fast thing mean in the moment? And, and are there not a million people already selling super speedy mortgages in, in the UK? Yeah, yeah, so, so unfortunately they're not. And, and, but let's be clear, so I, I, I think fast is a bit of a red herring. It's kind of a good word, it's sort of, it is there for the marketing, but does anybody really need a fast mortgage? And if so, how quick do you need it? So we've done lots of consumer research, and in reality, they don't use the word fast, they use the word certain. What we want is certainty in this process. So, you know, buying a house is probably one of the top 10 most stressful things any of us will ever do. It's very emotional, it's very costly, and and it can cause a lot of stress and angst, as I well know, because I'm going through this process as myself right now. And so really what you want to do is give people certainty and reassurance all the way through that process. So by giving people a mortgage offer, and allowing them to go through that process simply and transparently takes that stress away. It takes that uncertainty away. Now, to, to deliver certainty, in reality, what you have to do is to do that quickly. It's, a, it's almost a derivative of speed. So they go hand in hand. But it's important to say, people, I don't believe in fast mortgages in that sense. It's not the benefit that I think consumers want. It's the certainty and the control that they have is actually what they're really looking for. And it's it's a, it's a very important distinction to make. Right. OK, so most of the listeners are not in the UK, so they haven't experienced the nightmare of the UK property market and, and, and how it works in terms of offers and completions and all, and all this sort of funny stuff. But just simply as far as the mortgages are concerned, for people with no experience of taking out a UK mortgage and not using yourselves, if you just go to the market in general for a mortgage on a house in, in Farnham, say, what is the, shall we say, median decision time 
for you know the sort of top dozen providers of mortgages in the UK? Is it a day, a week, a month, a year? I mean, back in the day, I remember my folks moving in the seventies. It was three to six months. It was that long. Yeah. It was the mortgage queue. It was called. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it's nineteen days. These the stats, the surveys out there, they're published this data at the moment. So that the 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 typical time, if you like, is nineteen working days at the moment in the UK. Um, so what's that? Just um, uh, somewhere between three and four weeks. Or two and three, depending on how you do arithmetic. Well, exactly. Also, everybody's, <laughs> everybody's experience is slightly different as well. So, But I mean, it, it, there's two moments of truth. So a mortgage is a necessary evil to buy the house of my dreams. I'm not buying a mortgage. I'm buying a house. I've just got to go to this annoying bank to get some money to enable me to, to fulfill my dream in this process. And there's two moments of truth for a borrower. The day I know I've got my house... Yeah, and the day I move in my house, everything else is noise between that. Now, the problem is the day you know your house in the UK, it's typically when the house is taken off the market and you are and you've proven to the um, to the sellers that you're you're a good buyer. Typically, that's when you get your mortgage offer through that. So immediately you make an offer on this property. And if it's a if it's a hot property, there could be lots of people bidding for that property, immediately then there's a massive rush to get a mortgage and you don't really know that that property is off the market until that mortgage offer comes out through that process. So it's that stress and uncertainty of this period of time that we're trying to fix and solve within this business. And so if the, if the market as a whole has got a median of 19 days, what is roughly speaking the median of, of you folks? So, so today we're currently running at three days. Which is somewhat less than 19. Which is less than 19. That's congratulations, Mike. Your maths is excellent. <laughs> and um, I mean, again, and what we, what's unique about our business is, uh, and we might get into this later, we, we use artificial intelligence to do lots of this stuff, but we do this in a very highly regulated world. So actually using this technology in a highly regulated world means you can't just, you can't just deploy it, switch it on, walk off and hope it works. You need to know that it does work. So what we do is we... We release technology in a very systematic controlled process, proving to us in the market that it works. So we run it three days at the moment, but in reality, you know, sort of within the next 12 to 18 months, we would hope that about half of them would be done in a few hours. Right. Well, being a bit looser with my mathematics, you're, you, that is getting on for an order of magnitude improvement from the marketplace, which is certainly substantial. And you're just in the UK at the moment. We're just in the UK, and, and so just to sort of put that in context, there's two businesses. One is MCube, it's a technology business, specializes in artificial intelligence, and Empowered Mortgages is a regulated mortgage lender in the UK. And so therefore, that is now deploying MCube technology to create this new experience. MCube itself will have an international focus, and we will move ultimately into Europe and then into Asia. Right, okay. So just sticking with first things first, and in terms of the UK, and just from a sort of computer perspective, if you've got all your input data and you've got your transformation function, it doesn't matter what clever computer program you use, whether it's called AI or whether it's called Excel or whatever, it should be, quotes, able to take all of the data which is necessary for any good decision and give you its computation, which will be a yes and a no and something like that. We've done speedy credit decisions and, and all this kind of thing many times, as you can imagine. So there are simply two things there that really we need to look at is the input set of data and then of course the sort of transformation function and, and that that whole sort of thing in terms of uh, getting the computer to spot patterns ever better uh, and outperform uh, individuals own credit assessments um, we've touched on once or twice so with the mortgages and having said that the UK is a very heterogeneous market and also a bit of sort of strange 
uh, market with this, this process. But the first challenge is clearly having all the data. I mean, for example, if all the data you, you need, and I'll explain the thing that you and I know, but some of this will not. If all the data you need is, is available, I might want some mortgage. And you go, have you got your data? Yeah, here it is. And, and you know, it's validated somehow. You go, oh, right, okay. Then that, that is the, that is the, 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 the weakest uh, link, the, the thing that's going to take the longest is getting the data. Now, one of the data, which is, let's just take a key, a key example, uh, it's not just the sort of the, the address of the house, which <laughs> you can probably then find on Google Maps and stuff like that. But in the UK, you have this thing whereby every house buyer has to get this thing called a, a survey done. So you, you have to pay whatever, 500, 2,500, whatever it is these days, or whatever size of your house. And you get some person to go around and go, oh yeah, well actually, you do realise there's damp over there and, and the roof's got holes in it and, and go, shit. And then the commercially, you use that to negotiate with um, the buyer to change the price and, and all that kind of thing. So one of the biggest hurdles in terms of rapid decisions is presumably, and I think in Scotland it may be different, and you have a survey associated with a house yeah, in other is, countries yeah. maybe more rational, which is like I flog my car, uh, and here's the sort of here's the MOT document, uh, and, and yeah. here's the service history, and, and all that kind of thing. Now, if I'm flogging a really vintage Rolls Royce, you you might have an engineer to check it out and see how good it is. But in general, if I'm just selling a sort of fairly generic car, and um, the information comes with it. In the in in, in England, uh, England and Wales, uh, the information doesn't come with a house. So just on that particular quirk of the UK. Presumably, the weakest link in the chain is that you as a mortgage lender need to know what the survey says, because if the survey says the whole bloody thing's falling down, they go, oh shit, uh, maybe we shouldn't lend on this one because you know, the surveyor said it's going to fall down the week after next. So let's just talk about the survey thing and then we can talk about all the other data needed to make a credit decision. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right there. So, uh, and I think, and just before we dive into that one, I think what's important to flag right now, what is actually the problem in the industry and what are we trying to fix? Making fast decisions is not very difficult, to be quite frank. There's decision engines out there and you've put the right data in, it can turn out a decision. It really isn't that complicated. The problem is, is so much data needs to be entered into it. It's never correct, it's never consistent. So you get a garbage in and garbage out scenario. So what we have done is fix the, the garbage in and garbage out scenario. And I'll come on to that in a minute and how we do that. But you're right. So in the marketplace, what there's three types of survey that you can do. You can do a digital one, an automated one. You can do a desktop one, or you can do a physical one, which you've, which you've alluded to. About half the time at the moment, a physical survey is done in the marketplace. These are broad brush numbers. So therefore, and then the other half is either digital, therefore it's instant, or it's a desktop, which is a couple of hours. And this is somebody sitting around looking at comparable models behind the scenes. But it is typically an SLA of two, two, two to three hours to do that. So half can be done uh, without that physical survey and half do require that physical survey. And when that physical survey is required by the bank, the borrower wants that. It's really important to remember that they're buying a house. It's typically the most expensive financial expenditure piece they want. They want to know as well there's no damp and there's nothing wrong with that property. So what we do in this situation, it's again, it's about control and certainty. Yeah? So what we're trying to do is create this experience where basically, imagine how you might buy car insurance on an aggregator site today. You do something for 10 or 15 minutes and immediately you get presented with a number of offers. You choose one and therefore you complete that and you're insured. But then you might need to do a no claims bonus afterwards supply documents afterwards. It's very similar. What we do is we get people through that journey in a super fast way and we give them notification that they're financially underwritten. So you know that actually you can have that mortgage of that amount for that property 
All the checks have been done. The only thing you're waiting for is that physical survey, which by the way, you want that to be done properly as well. And therefore the certainty is increased for them. They know where they stand. They might need to wait another three or four days for that to come through, but they're in that, in that position. If you're in the other half where you've got a digital or a desktop, you still can have that decision in the same day then. Right, okay, so uh, I get that. And uh, interesting stats, I didn't realise that 50%, uh, the number's 50%, because of course, back in the day when I bought houses, <laughs> it was 100%, because there, there ain't one, no digital surveys, because there wasn't. No, no, exactly, it's no, changed, no digital. Yeah. Life was simpler in a way. But in terms of this simple picture we did on the whiteboard of data in uh, some transformation decision function, and then uh, an answer uh, out, like all simple things you scribble on the, on the whiteboard, reality is more complex than a few straight lines. Uh, and one thing that occurs to me uh, in this context, perhaps, is that let me say I want a mortgage from you and I want it for sort of fairly quickly for whatever reason. And you say, well, actually, if you want it quickly, we can do a digital survey and that'll take sort of 57 milliseconds and we'll give you an answer in five minutes. But, and this is where it interacts with the decision, but we can only give you a loan to value of 60% because you've got to allow yourself more fat for the fact that maybe maybe the, the digital survey hasn't thrown up the fact that it's got some damp that didn't, wasn't there for whenever it was up. Or... If you want a sort of like 99.999%, <laughs> which you won't get, of course, but anyway, metaphorically speaking, mortgage, uh, then actually we'll, we will need a physical survey. So is there an interaction between the decision and the quality of data you're getting up front? That's kind of a different type of product process. So we, can that be built? Yes. Is the data available? Could we build that? Yes. The, the problem in the process is, is it's, it's a highly regulated advice process. So by the time people have got to us, they've gone through, we, we work through brokers, so therefore, they go to a broker, get their advice, and they've already made these decisions. And typically what borrowers are doing is the latitude around their loan to values is typically limited most of the time because most people stretch themselves to try and do this as it's just a natural thing to do. So could it be built? Yes. Could you actually execute that in the current regulated advice process? It would be more difficult to do that because of the lack of connectivity in the, in, in the schemes. But it does happen in, in some regards. Yeah. And typically for a borrower, again, this goes back, speed is not the right word to use it. Why do I want a fast mortgage? Well, it might be because I'm under pressure because I've got a discount on that property. I've negotiated hard. I've got to act like a cash buyer. And there's a really good example. Or a first-time buyer buying a development, you've only got 25 days to complete. And therefore, the, there are... There are moments like this, but most of the time, it's all about certainty. Yeah, most of the time, it's just about taking all the stress and hassle away. Yes, I get that. And as I say, it was, a, it was more of a sort of a, a scribbling on the whiteboard question uh, about the interaction between the quality of the data and the, the quality decision. And, and where, you have, where you have loan-to-value things, as, as a banker, you can always trade it off. So let's take a simple example. I mean, as you can imagine... Being a podcaster, you're even more than the CEOs of, of banks abroad. And so uh, I'm buying some mega mansion and I only need a 10% loan to value just because I want a bit of cash flow. Well, 10% loan to value, taking just a, a Gedanken, a 10% loan to value, you don't need that much certainty around, around the thing to realise that you're not taking much risk because the chance of it falling down completely well, the building's insured anyway, as long as it's insured, uh, which you'll, you'll require anyway, uh, or the chance of the market tank, tanking 90% is an extreme case. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it wouldn't happen. Anyway, okay, well, look, so we've banged on a bit. Well, I've rather banged on a bit and put, pushed you to bang on a bit about the, the survey, uh, uh, and perhaps that's an, a large anomaly of the UK and doesn't apply uh, elsewhere. So let's put that, move that to one side. Let's now go back to talking about 
the data in general to make a lending decision uh, in the housing, private housing market. Just at a sort of relatively high level, what are the challenges there? If I decide to go off and do it even better than you're doing it today, uh, what are the challenges I'll, I'll face there in terms of getting all the other decisions, all the other data I need to feed it into my computer so I can get the decision? So, I mean, the challenges there is there is just a lot of data coming through, but actually it's very predictable what level of data you want. You want to know someone's expenditure, their income, their credit worthiness. Um, can you prove their, um, you know, who they say they are? So this is all very predictable stuff. But, you know, and, but when this data flows through, it comes through manual entry, APIs, and through documents. And the combination of those things creates inconsistencies. So a simple example might be on your payslip, you might have a gross income and a net income, but in between the two, five or six lines, which could be variable pay or a variety of different things. And the lender needs to understand what those are. And therefore, it becomes quite difficult to be able to understand that level of granularity and detail within this. And the key thing around that is, so therefore, um, as and so what happens is uh, somebody will fill in an application form, take them two hours to do that, put some documents aside, submit that into the process. And then over the next four weeks, the lender will ask them questions to clarify the data, to make sure it's consistent and correct. And that's what slows it down. What we do is different. When you're actually doing our application form, it takes about 10 minutes, our application form, we collate around 19,000 bits of data in that 10 minutes. Do you have people who apply who can write very quickly then, or do you source that data from somewhere else? So as you literally, as you type in the property, for instance, immediately we'll take 1,800 data points on that property to value it and to contextually underwrite it. And then we'll say, if there's a missing piece of data, we'll then ask that in the journey. So our 10 minutes is filling in the gaps not asking people to repeat the information we've already collected. I see. So in, in a sense, you've got a very long form, but you've got a very clever autocomplete. So if I'm online, I'm buying something and I stick in, you know, my, my postcode, it's already narrowed it down a lot. And then I do one drop down uh, and that's it. Or as I had a nightmare doing yesterday because I was buying various things, flights and stuff, there's some bloody drop down of every country in the world. And it's either United Kingdom or it's UK or it's GB. And I'm scrolling up and down for ages, which is a, a poor interface. And just in passing, as a curiosity, so I, I type in my address, let's say I'm buying my own house again for some strange reason. <laughs> Where on earth do you source 1,800 data points about it? I mean, I know there's lots of data in the modern world, but what the hell are the 1,800 data points on the average house in just outside London? So, so we how many bathrooms you've got, kitchens and bedrooms, if freehold, leasehold, flood risk, crime? source of that is what or is that sort of a secret so we have built a array of apis that comes into our own pipeline behind the scenes so we can go to the land registry to check if there's a charge who's that charge with all those sorts of bits we, we can look at future development is the railway line being developed next to it uh, where's the nearest river or flood risk is there how close to an airport how close to a cliff all this stuff is actually available publicly and uh, we we've just collated all this into one area and what this enables us to do is because uh, every time you make a decision on property, it's not just not about the valuation, like flood risk is a great example. I, my house is actually by the smallest river in the world. But anyway, but it registers that and gives you a rating of that one to understand if that house contextually you're willing to lend on, irrelevant of the valuation. So we do all this up front. And, and as soon as something's missing, that's when we ask the question to to the borrower. What we don't do, like every other lender, is ask them to fill in three pages of the property form because we've already got all that information. We don't need that. Yeah, we don't ask you to 
give us your income and everything, we've read your payslip or your set of accounts and your expenditure and things like this. We're doing this for you because actually it's quicker and more robust to do it that way. And then we check in. I see. So it's an easier process uh, as well as getting the certainty and being somewhat considerably faster than the median for the market. So just to wrap up this section then, because clearly this is something we could talk about for a long time. And I think the way you've presented it is in a very modest fashion, because uh, as you identified, based on your career in, in, in real t- retail banking, the, the challenge isn't once you've got the data, the challenge is, hang on, this says seven and this says four, you know, and there's yes. all that kind of thing in terms of cleaning data. And anyone who works in the data world will understand that challenge and understand that it is never as easy as it sounds from a top-down perspective. So clearly, if you're not getting bust, you're doing a good job of that. But going back to my simple picture on the, on, on the, on the whiteboard, you need a bunch of data in order to make a decision and then the decision to lend or not to lend. But the other challenge that you mentioned, and I was a little bit curious about this one, was that, as I prefer to call them, getting your computer to do clever things. But as lots of people say, artificial intelligence, which is a fingernails on a blackboard to me. But anyway, using a computer to make the decision, and, and as one of your businesses is technology, you were saying, and I didn't quite get this myself, or rather I don't know the answer, what particular is challenging about using your computer when you're a regulated business? imagine but maybe just tell us all what the right answer is yes yeah, so using technology obviously as a regulated business is a necessity what's difficult is deploying new technology and to do innovative and different things so it's changing your processes and changing to new technology is the challenge so you we talk about decisioning so making if you've got all the right data in all the right format and it's all consistent every lender all the big lenders have a machine that will make a decision for you near instantly, within a day or two, very quickly. Their problem is, is the data's never right. And we never use, for instance, artificial intelligence to make a decision. You don't need to. Take a bit of a gun to a knife fight. You just don't need to do that. We use rule-based engines to do that. We use artificial intelligence to do the human activity before that. So what, what's happening in all these lenders is you give them your payslip, and then a human being looks at that and goes, well, that's a payslip, and there's gross pay, there's net pay. Have they declared it correctly? Yes, they have. Fantastic. Here's their bank statement. What we're doing is we're getting artificial intelligence to read all that data, cross-reference that data, make sure it's correct. When it's inconsistent, we use their machine learning algorithms to create a question into the journey to clarify that. Is that variable pay? What is that expenditure piece on your bank statement? Through that process. So we're using it to clean the data, to make it machine readable and consistent at the front. And once it's clean, you can then put it through a decision engine that's highly auditable, completely transparent. So there's no ability to do unconscious bias and all that sort of stuff, which people talk about with AI. And you get into those decisions. So it's about making sure that you use the technology in the right way. But the analogy I use with bankers to tell them about artificial intelligence, it's a bit like you've got a mini it's about lifting up the engine and putting a formula one engine in it the chassis just isn't going to hold it you know it's, it's a very very complex piece of that needs intense computing power and legacy systems just are not built to do it that way i see so in terms of that process and, and, and you remind me of my way more noddy version but in the late 90s when i founded a fintech before fintech existed i'm using the management accounts and the information in, in banks to give you an understanding about the the businesses at a very strategic level and 
risk returns and that kind of stuff. There was a challenge, of course, around noisy data, which is finance, fuck it up one day, put minus a million, and next day, oh shit, it's plus a million. And as volatility of the, the income streams was important, um, I had to do something uh, around that. I didn't call it intelligence. But in terms of fast forwarding to 2023, and so you're doing this, that sounds fine. So where does Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. or the other pronouns regulator turn up and look at you, your computer and go, oh, you're not allowed to do that? That's the bit I'm sort of not finding at the moment. Yeah, so I mean, so we're regulated by the FCA as a, as a regulated mortgage lender, and we have to do all the reports and have the right governance structure in place to be able to do that. And we speak a lot to the FCA about how we're using artificial intelligence. And So my question, to be more specific, what is their particular interest in, let me just say, the algorithms that you're using to clean your data? I don't really see... That I don't understand because I'm not in your business. I don't understand how a regulator would come up and say, oh, what are your algorithms? Or, you know, what Google Cloud package are you using to clean the data? Or, you know, what was the process of developing your software? What I don't know is how much, and it's ever increasing, as Sir Paul Tucker has pointed out um, when he was on the show a while ago, I don't know how far the regulation reaches down into the business. Yeah. So, so the regulation doesn't work like that. So it's, it's on a principle basis anyway. So what they would do to us is they would create a standard on us to say that we must self-govern ourselves and say that we're making responsible and clear decisions that are auditable. And therefore, we will have a governance framework like any bank would have, like any lender would have, a governance structure that we would be able to prove that we are acting reasonably and, and safely and appropriately all the way through this stuff. And therefore, they are looking for us to be able to generate outputs to them that proves to them that we are monitoring ourselves and keeping ourselves honest in this process. And that is the way regulation works in this country because it's a principle-based approach. So, But they, they will go into detail around how do we use it. We have to help um, educate them and help them understand how they do that. We have to make sure our governance framework looks at this process, creates the right data and oversight to make sure that we are using it appropriately. Excellent. Okay, so I, un- I understand now, and uh, I see the regulation, and going back to the East India Company, uh, I wish I lived centuries ago, apart from the lack of dentists. Well, not even centuries ago, actually, at the start of my career, when there were no regulators, because mm. people that, it's like driving a car, although they're trying to make that more difficult. People driving cars, unless they're a sort of 17-year-old lads or something, people driving cars are heavily motivated and highly motivated not to crash and kill themselves. <laughs> yes. In the same way, yes. people that start businesses are highly motivated, and, and there used to be this old-fashioned concept, maybe you're just about old enough to, to, to remember it, called the, the free market and, and, and business. But anyway, let's gloss over that. Okay, so that's been a really fascinating um, coverage. We've, we've dotted around a whole number of things. As I say, I think my takeaway is that not only do you explain it very well, not only are, are your data uh, very impressive about how much faster than the medium you're doing it, um, but also that <laughs> in terms of the number of years that you've been uh, at this, it's not the kind of thing that someone might start it today and uh, sort of sussed it out by a, a week's time because it's harder than you think. No. No, no. Good. Okay, so before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Stuart, you may have mentioned mortgages and, and your businesses once or twice in the main course, but going back to the bit at the beginning, excuse me for my uh, uh, lack of memory, but uh, which one was MCube again and which one was Empowered? And maybe like to let listeners know, respectively for MCube and also Empowered, what product services they offer to which kind of clients, which of the listeners to be checking you out, toot sweet, and then uh, what do you need more of to be even bigger and better tomorrow than you are today? 
Absolutely, Mike. Thanks very much. So, so MCube is a technology business. It specializes in artificial intelligence. It's customers of banks and building societies and lenders. And we speak to all these people in the marketplace saying that here is a way for you to create a better experience for your customers. Here's a way for getting better data into your business. Here's a way for reducing your cost base through all those sorts of things. So I'm always looking that our customers are are those types of people, banks and building societies. So I'm always looking to discuss and connect and share what we're doing in this process for that. I'm a big believer that we are a, not a disruptor. We're a transformational partner. We want to do this with people in the market, not against people in the market. And there's lots of good reasons for that. It's because it's complex and people have a, a key role to play. So that's the core focus of MCube. It's an AI business that supports banks and building societies. Empowered Mortgages is, a, as I say, is a regulated lender. We deal with mortgage brokers. If anybody would like a mortgage through them, uh, we compete with all the top five. We have pricing that is equal to or sometimes even better than the top five banks in the country at the moment. And we have a whole a full array of products out there to enable people to buy that. And we're growing that business, proving to the marketplace why technology can help borrowers gain more certainty, gain more control, through their mortgage broker over, over this process. And again, we'll look to grow that um, as we go forward as well. And what do you need more of to be even bigger and better tomorrow than you are today? Key thing for us is we want more banks, uh, more partnerships with banks and building societies in the marketplace. We want to be able to show to them how we can help them use artificial intelligence in a highly regulated way, in a really safe, controlled way within their business that demonstratively improves their customers' experience and reduces their costs. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a very good idea. And if I was the right kind of person um, on the other side of the podcast listening to that and only do that kind of thing, um, I would definitely check you out. And I think that um, what distinguishes you guys is that you've got a, a deep personal experience of having sat in the CEO's chair in a banking unit and therefore understanding uh, not just the sort of stuff you might be taught about on an MBA course about how to run a bank and you know you need a treasury department and assets and liabilities oh yeah right okay but also actually what it feels there and what the, the priorities are and you know in terms of keeping everybody happy and doing the right thing and moving forward in, a, in an environment which can be difficult to change so that enables you I'm quite sure to dock very well on that side with the banks so I'd like to wish you empowered and MCube every success in the future thanks Mike Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit and Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride